When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode number 18 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you're all safe and well. It is great to be with you today. It's been a busy couple weeks since the last episode. We had our longest run yet in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New York with four shows in three different cities, which doesn't sound like much, but it's the first time we've used the bus and moved around in quite a while, so a little bit of an adjustment. Then it was a quick two days at home before flying out to California for a great time at the Hog Farm, headlining the Days Between Festival. Uh, David Nelson Band, Full Moon Alice, Stu Allen, and a bunch more of our friends were there, so it was a great hang. My featured guest today was out there at that festival playing with not one, but two of those bands. I'm talking about guitarist and pedal steel player Barry Sless. Barry is such a great guy and a super in-demand player, and we had a great conversation that I think you're going to really enjoy. Also with me today is Michael Wegner to talk about his band, Cosmic Charlie, and the scene in Athens, Georgia, and really all around the southeast. These guys move around quite a bit. Plus, today I bring you the fourth and final installment of my conversation with the legendary Rick Turner. Before we get started, I'd like to appeal to you to support the podcast any way you can. There's our monthly Patreon subscription, which gives you exclusive bonus content like outtakes, expanded interviews and segments. Uh, videos and stories from the road, including some great footage from the hog farm this past weekend, uh, community hang time with me, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity that was started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net, and wherever you are listening to the podcast, please rate, like, and review. Thanks for being here, and now let's get right to it. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today we honor Martha and the Vandellas. Recording on the Motown label alongside the Supremes, the Miracles, the Temptations, and the Four Tops, Martha and the Vandellas led the charge in black music onto radio stations and record shelves of mainstream America, helping to bridge the color lines in music at the time. Martha and the Vandellas formed in 1957 as the Delphi's and went through a few lineups until Martha Reeves joined. They recorded a few singles for Chess Records and their subsidiary Checker, but had no success at all. While Reeves was working as a secretary and A&R rep for Motown, the girls began singing backups on Motown records before signing on with them in 1962. They recorded a few moderately successful songs before hooking up with the famed Motown writers Holland, Dozier, Holland, and then the string of hits began. During their nine-year run on the charts beginning in 1963, Martha and the Vandellas charted 26 hits. 
Ten of these songs reached the top ten in the R&B charts, including two number ones and six top ten hits on the Billboard Hot 100. Their most well-known songs were Heat Wave, Jimmy Mack, Nowhere to Run, and the one we will hear today, Dancing in the Streets. They are members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and are ranked at number 96 in Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. Heat Wave and Dancing in the Streets are included in the Rolling Stone 500 Songs That Shaped Rock and Roll. Dancing in the Streets was one of the earliest cover tunes in the Grateful Dead repertoire, making its debut in 1966. Now the Dead really took this song out and, and they turned it into an extended jam vehicle that Motown probably never could have imagined for this tune. Uh, they played it regularly through 1971, and then it came back in a very, very different style, yet it was still a jam vehicle in 76, and was a staple throughout the late 70s. And you know, once Donna and Keith left the band in 79, it kind of disappeared, but it showed up sporadically. It was played about 20 more times between then and 1988. So here is Martha and the Vandellas and the original hit version of Dancing in the Streets. SMS Breakdown is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built right here in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio Mastering, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Today I'm going to bring you the fourth and final part of my conversation with luthier and audio guru Rick Turner. I want to thank Rick for this conversation. This was such an amazing experience and, and I learned a ton. Uh, even though we got four episodes out of it, there's still so much more that didn't make the podcast that can be found on my Patreon site. You can pick up your monthly subscription by visiting themusicplaystheband.net. As we finish it up today, Rick talks about the trials and tribulations of working with the wall of sound. Something like this has never been attempted, so I'm sure there's all kinds of problems oh, yeah. along the way. Tell me, can you get... Tell me if you can think of the one, the trials and tribulations, that horror story that goes along with this wall of sound. Well, there was that that Stanford gig where all the tweeters blew out, you know, but, you know, hey, what the hell, you know, um, it, there is a that that ties into a funny one. Um, one of the guys who worked for Alembic and then wound up working for the dead, Dennis Wiz Leonard, um, got Alembic was a JBL uh, EV and Macintosh dealer. And so, uh, you know, we sold the band all the gear. So Wiz becomes the, the recon expert and pretty busy at that. 
So somebody at JBL figures out that Wiz has been mixing and matching speaker cone parts. He's been putting paper domes onto D120s to turn them into, you know, the D120 that had the aluminum dome. And somebody at JBL freaked out that, that we were modding JBL speakers. They called Wiz up and said, you know, you, you, you can't do this anymore. We're, we're not, we're going to, we're not going to allow you to buy parts from us to do this. And <laughs> Wiz went to Ron and said, God, what do I do? What do I do? And Ron said, call him back and say, fine. Electro voice would like our business. Well, that was the end of that. Right. <laughs> All the parts you want, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as, as amazing as this thing was, as groundbreaking as it was, as wonderful as it sounded, as cool looking as it was, it, it was a behemoth that was, it was nearly impossible to tour with the thing. Am I right? Yeah. They wound up with two sets of scaffolding. There, there's a myth out there that there were two walls of sound. There weren't. Uh, there were two sets of scaffolding that would that would leapfrog. And yeah, it was um, it was a ball buster. You know, I think uh, I think the concepts could be applied to uh, to gear today. And for one thing, you just automatically give up on the idea that human beings are going to pick up speaker cabinets and move them. You go, okay, this is all forklift land, <laughs> right. you know. And then the other would be to basically make the speakers become their own scaffolding in locking together uh, and and all that. You right, know? right. Then, so there are way. <clears throat> also, you know, now, um, geez, what are we? Nearly fifty years later. God, yeah. Um, uh, there are. Smaller, lighter drivers that do just as well. Much smaller and lighter power amps that do just as well. You would, in a in a in a modern wall of sound, you would want to have them be powered speaker cabinets. You'd build the power amps in right below end. Do you think any of this stuff, any of this new stuff that you're talking about, in in all honesty, sounds as good or sounds better than the wall of sound, or was that the pinnacle right there? I think I think a modern system with modern drivers could sound at least as good as the wall of sound. Wow. Uh, the particularly when you get into um, the all important mid range, there are amazing uh, cone mid range drivers these days and dome uh, mid range drivers. Um, there's there's some great stuff. You might be able to even pull it down from being a four-way system into a three-way system. And, uh, and that simplifies things a bit, um, you know, cause, cause these, these, uh, full range drivers and, and wide range, mid range drivers these days are, are just amazing. You know, well, so, none of it will ever look as cool. That's for sure. No, we know that no, no, no <laughs> one's, no one's going to be like making their Lego models and their home replicas of this. Like they are right no, now. No, that, that Anthony, Anthony Koski, uh, mini wall of sound. It's just brilliant. Yeah. It's so cool. We've been following it on Facebook. Well, man. I, oh yeah. 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 I've been in touch 
Oh, you have. That's great. Oh, yeah. Giving him full encouragement on it. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing all this with me and with the listeners. I mean, this is not only the guitars and the wall of sound and all that are a huge part of the Grateful Dead's history. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to to have you on and help me share that with everybody and, you know, give them a chance to learn a little bit more about it. Right. From, for lack of a better term, right from the horse's mouth. Great. Great. Rob. <laughs> so greatly appreciate it. And I really look forward to seeing you guys again soon. We will know? be out again. I enjoyed hanging last time and I'm looking forward to spending some more time with you. So everybody, a uh, big thank you. That's Rick Turner hanging out with us today. Thank you, my friend. Great. Okay. Best of the band. I appreciate that. Once again, I'd like to thank Rick Turner. It was so cool to get to talk to somebody who was literally there on the ground floor right when this was all getting going, you know, and to hear his experiences. So thank you once again, Rick. Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity.coach So we are heading south today to talk to Michael Wegner, lead guitarist for Cosmic Charlie, who are based in Athens, Georgia, but they find their way around the southeast quite a bit. Okay, so I'm taking you down to Athens, Georgia today to talk to Michael Wegner from Cosmic Charlie. How are you, my friend? Uh, so far so good today (laughs) right on man well thanks for taking the time to do this for me um so you guys i did a little research uh you've been around for a while but you've been around as long as dark star orchestra 1999 so can you tell me uh give me a brief run rundown on uh on the history of cosmic charlie and kind of how you guys got your start well it was um it was never intended to be a um an actual band when we got together it was a uh it was well 22 years ago um Last week it was it was for Jerry you know Jerry Garcia birthday show night summer of ninety nine, and it was just members of um, different bands. Uh, Athens has a pretty you know pretty strong music scene, which yeah. you know uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. So um, yeah, we just kind of networked with some you know uh, myself um, the bass player. We had a band that did original music, and we got with some other folks and. Um, just decided to do a night of dead music. You know, it had been what at that point, four years since, since uh, the dead had, you know, since Jerry had died and uh, you know, it just sounded like fun. <laughs> and um, you know, one thing led there and it, it kept on being fun. And, you know, now it's 22 years later and I don't know, I lost count. We're probably approaching a thousand shows at this point, but. So how often do you um, play? In a, in a normal time, I know it's kind of hard to these times. Yeah, are right. Crazy. <laughs> well, um, we probably have averaged about about fifty shows a year. There's been years that have been, you know, it's gone up and down. Um, we all do other bands too, so it's never been, um, you know, it's never been our sole focus. Two guitars, bass, two drummers, or one drummer? Uh, two drummers. Yeah. So uh, yeah, oh, that's right. You know, I remember. I I saw the picture. You guys actually have a little mini beast in some of the stuff I saw. Some of the hanging drums. We got a little beast. We got a little beast. (laughs) Yeah, man. It looked cool. Um, Yeah. We we basically, you know, I would say we we generally model ourselves in the sort of, you know, mid-70s to early 80s period. Um, Well, 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 I guess you'd have to say 
late seventies in terms of going back to two drums, but um, as far as, you know, roughly what, you know, what we go for repertoire wise. You all travel quite a bit as well. You don't just stick around in the Athens area, do you? But yes, we do. We get around um, primarily in the Southeast, the Carolinas, Virginia, Tennessee. Um, You know, we sometimes get up, uh, you know, into Ohio or beyond. It's been a while. We we have been out to the West Coast. We did a cross country tour a couple of times in the uh, the mid two thousands. Um, we got to play the Oregon Country Fair, which I know nice. I think it was just a couple of years after Dark Star did it. So cool! Um, <laughs> that place is amazing. Oh God, I mean, is that not well? <laughs> I'll go ahead and say, is that not about the best gig ever? I don't know. You you probably have a lot, a lot more best gigs ever. It's up there, man. It is <laughs> yeah. definitely up there. So if you're modeling, you know, you talked about the late 70s and all that as far as instrumentation. I'm sure this is not the case with the music. Tell me about what's your guys, uh, you personally, and then you as a band, both. What's your your specific approach to interpreting and performing the music? I think (laughs) from what I hear from people who play with us and what I see from other bands, we definitely are heavy on, we we lean heavily on the the jams. So... um, you know, when it comes to, and, and kind of really just exploring dynamics. So a song, you know, maybe just a classic first set song where, you know, um, you know, Jerry would take, uh, you know, uh, two passes through on the guitar or something with a guitar solo and go back to singing. We might wind up with four or five passes and, you know, and occasionally just bring it down, you know, Bring the dynamic down, maybe way lower, or you know, just explore slightly more, you know, roller coaster of dynamics. Um, outside of that, I guess another another thing that we, you know, at least after the first, by the time we'd been a band for a couple of years, we basically threw set lists out the window, and so um, you know, we we got to where we knew enough repertoire that we we just we were just kind of roll with it and and. So we we actually walk out on stage. We don't even know what the first song's going to be. So I know there's a great community down there because it's such an amazing music scene. Can tell me a little bit about the local Grateful Dead community in Athens? Well, let's see. You've got Cosmic Charlie. Right. <laughs> we, like, well, that's be the most consistent thing since now you go back before us. Of course, um, you know you used to have. Uh, when widespread panic started out uh, and when I first moved to town, you know, they would play every Monday night and, you know, you could count on, you know, one, probably 30 to 50% of their night being Grateful Dead covers. You know, when they first started out, that was a a big thing for them. So um, there were bands back then, but I think really in the past, past, you know, decade, it's gotten a little more going on. There's a, there's actually a, a Jerry Garcia cover band called JGBCB. The dead audience is these old, <laughs> older folks that, you know, they have decades of touring with the dead under their belt and they just want to come out and, and experience some of that again. But also, you know, I'm sure you notice too, you, you're playing for a lot of college kids and teenagers sometimes mm-hmm. that are picking up, you know, they want it, they know what this is and they want to experience it live. And, um, what I've noticed is you don't have so much of a divide anymore. It used to be like, um, you know, you know, kind of the, the, the punk, 
you know, the punk scene versus the dead scene or whatever, the, you know, the harder edge, you know, nobody from one crowd wanted to associate with the other crowd at all. You know, if you, if you were a deadhead, you, you know, you had your little hippie scene and, and then the indie punk people had their scene. And I'm seeing now that younger kids, they don't draw those lines so much, right? You know, that they, they, they like all, all kinds of music and they, you know, they like the dead and they like, they like fish, but they, they also like, you know, you know, whatever green day or, you know, <laughs> right. um, you know, whatever classic, classic eighties music, um, Radiohead, you know, it, it's a lot of crossover and that's to me great. Cause I've always, for sure. Loved all kinds of music. So. What is it for, to you in your mind, your heart, what is it about this music that creates this tight knit community, this subculture that's everywhere? You know, I think there's probably five answers for that. And, you know, where you could isolate one thing and say, that's it. And you'd be right. And, you know, part of it, I was, I want to turn to, you know, the element of chance, you know, the, the, the jam, what, you know, what, you know, I, and probably you experienced and anybody that, that followed the dead and probably anybody that, you know, goes to see dark star orchestra and everything since then is there's this element element of it's excitement you know you're not hearing the same song played the same way every night and you know and if you go to multiple nights you're not even hearing the same song repeated right rarely and that's to me was a big appeal so that's a lot of it but lately um i have found myself getting um just thinking a lot more about just the song craft um and and in particular robert hunter's lyrics well, I tell you what, man, I can't thank you enough for taking a little bit of time and, and shedding some light down there. You guys got some stuff coming up. I know you're pointing in Alabama real soon. Best of luck to you. Um, and hopefully when we get back down in the south, down in the southeast, we'll get to meet in person. All right. So that was Michael Wegner from Cosmic Charlie down in Athens, Georgia. Thank you again for your time and have a great day. Yeah. Right, so once again thank you to michael wegner for being here today and that little bit of music you heard coming out was a, a little clip from cosmic charlie if you like what you're hearing today and would like to support the podcast we have two different ways for you to do that you can make a one-time contribution via paypal or become a patron with a monthly subscription that includes expanded video versions of our segments all of the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast, videos from home and on the road, including some old DSO footage, and much, much more. You can support the cause, learn more about the podcast and our sponsors, read the blog, or contact me through our website, musicplaystheband.net. And if you have the time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever podcast player you might use. Thanks for your continued support and for help spreading the word about the podcast. We're getting more and more listeners each week, and that's all because of you out there, so thank you very much. Our feature conversation today is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, go to Grateful Sweats for subtle dead designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy and see for yourself. Designs only other heads will get. When you're wearing that shirt that has the big globe on it, the two eyes are kind of sticking out of it, like the one I just got. When someone says, see a nice shirt, you know, they, they get it. They're on the bus. The cap with the single finger in the air also makes its point. Look great on tour with men's and ladies' tees and tanks, caps, pins, and clearance items as low as $5. 
get it all at www.etsy.com slash shop slash grateful sweats or click from our sponsors link at themusicplaystheband.net. My guest today is Barry Sless. Barry's been a part of the scene for a long time now in demand as both a guitarist and a pedal steel player. He spent some time in the band Kingfish. He's a founding member of the David Nelson Band, works often with Chris Robinson, and spent a lot of time playing with Phil and Friends over the years. Oh, I forgot to mention his long-running stint with Moon Alice also. You see, so many other projects I could name as well, so you see what I'm talking about when I say in demand. He's had a lot of great experiences and brings a lot of great insight into this conversation. Okay, I am here today with Barry Sless. How are you, my friend? Great. How about you, Rob? I'm doing good. It's nice to be home for a few minutes. Uh, I know we're going to see each other in a couple of days, but it's nice to get this done uh, on computers so we don't have to be rushing for time when we see each other in California, which is where you are right now. You're home in Marin? I am in the the beautiful uh, town of Fairfax. Right on. How, uh, how'd you do getting through, uh, this, this craziness we've been going through for the last year or so? Uh, I, I hit the trails basically. I kind of took the year off from playing music except for a few little things that would pop up here and there. And I live in a beautiful area with lots of hiking trails, um, that start a block from my house. So I just kind of focused all my energy on that. I, I calculated that I hiked over 600 miles last year from my wow. front door from your front door yeah that's awesome did you take any trips to go do any hikes or just you didn't need to i guess it's all right I, there i didn't need to well you know in the beginning of the pandemic they were saying you need to stay home and just do stuff in your neighborhood and luckily my neighborhood opens up to just all this open space i walk to the ocean if i wanted to um and i'm planning to <laughs> right but uh and, and did you play at all? Did you practice or did you just kind of step away? I did. You know, I, I, I'd go through long periods where I didn't even like touch an instrument. It was weird, like not having um, the impetus of, you know, like a, a gig looming that I have to be sharp for or, I have, you know, I, I know different people approached it differently. I know some people that just hunkered down and just practiced and worked on and for some reason, I just, you know, I just I do know. have that motivation. I just, uh, for the first time in probably my adult life, since I've been playing music for a living, all of a sudden I had all this open space with nothing looming that I had to, to work for. And I just, I sort of enjoyed the freedom of it. You know, no, I get it, man. When it, for me, it <clears throat> might've been because of depression because we weren't having any gigs all of a sudden, but I didn't, I walked my kits over here in my practice kit and I walked by it every day for like two or three months. I know the feeling. And then at some point I, you know, I got, we were like, geez, I better, I better start playing a little bit. So I, I don't lose it. You know, what if I suck when I come back? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you were born in Baltimore, if I have it right. Yes. Can you uh, share with us a little bit about your musical upbringing and how you got started and everything? Oh, let me see. That's uh, going a ways back. You know, I, I seem to, I mean, I was always into music. I uh, grew up where, you know, my my brother and my dad were always playing music around the house. And um, then I'm in high school, I just sort of gravitated to hanging around with the, the guys that played music that, you know, that were in bands. And, you know, I didn't play or anything. You weren't playing yet, even in high school? No, I was a, 
I, I started like, uh, I started in high school. Um, like towards, I guess, towards the end of high school. And uh, my friends were, you know, some of them were already playing in bands and one of them offered to show me some chords and he taught me um, I'm So Glad by Cream, which is just a, a moving E chord and a D chord. And um, lent me his extra guitar and, you know, I just, uh, I would listen to records and play along to records and that's how I got started. Complete. So you're complete. Basically, you're completely self-taught. Yeah. Wow. At that, yeah. and you didn't start till that late. That's incredible. What what kind of what music were you listening to at that point? Were you into uh, rock? Yeah. When I first started, I was listening to like Hendrix and and Cream. Um, those were the kind of the two big things, and then somehow I veered into country rock and started listening to like uh, Poco. Pure Prairie League, Flying Burrito Brothers. And then uh, actually before that, this is sort of a seminal moment. Uh, I remember hearing the record uh, Teach Your Children, and which had this instrument on it that I had never heard before. And I remember I, I bought the album and I was like, what, what is that instrument on that song? And I looked on the, the back of the album cover and it, Teach Your Children, uh, pedal steel guitar, Jerry Garcia. And I'm like, it's, it's kind of a familiar sounding name. I don't, you know, I've heard that name somewhere, but I really like the sound of that instrument. And that's was my first recollection of, of hearing that instrument. Wow. And then shortly after that, I started to get into like the country rock bands um, and started to hear like Rusty Young from Poco play pedal steel at this point, I was probably playing guitar for about, I had been playing for maybe two years. Really? And started to try and emulate the sound of pedal steel on guitar. And then, you know, somewhere found a used pedal steel and uh, my parents helped me pay for it. And uh, that sort of, you know, got me off and running with the pedal steel. Wow. Um Speaking of Poco, real quick, I don't know if you heard today. Paul Cotton died today. Yeah, yeah, yeah I just heard that. That's yeah. a shame. And Rusty I'm... Young, we lost him like a couple months ago. Yeah, I know. It's getting to that point. So at that point, you're starting to play the country stuff and and and, and the western swing too, right? Because that first touring gig you had is cowboy jazz, correct? Yeah, western swing came a little bit uh, later. Um, you know, I hadn't been exposed to that yet. Uh, and, um, at some point I remember, uh, we had this cool FM radio station and I remember hearing this song with this long jam by a band called the Grateful Dead. And, uh, it was trucking off of Europe 72. And I would just, I'd be listening to that and go, wow, like, this is like the music that I was I've always been looking for, but I didn't know it was out there, but it, it had qualities of stuff that like, I've always desired to hear in music, but I didn't, I couldn't define it. I didn't know what it was. And it was just, you know, just the jams, the stretching out the conversation between the instruments and um, the, the, the freeness of it that just kept going and morphing and changing into different things. 
And uh, that just totally, you know, that opened up my world. At, at that point, so do you start digging deeper into the dead? And I guess you probably went straight to Europe 72 off of that. Yeah, uh, that was the first uh, dead album that I got. And, uh, you know, then I, and then my friends that were playing music uh, in a band were, um, you know, they maybe did a few things off of like American Beauty or Working Man's Dead. You know, I think they might have done Uncle John's Band or something like that. And so I started to become more familiar with it through, you know, my musician friends. And, and you know, then I just started uh, gravitating towards playing that style. Do you, what, what year was that, do you know? I mean, obviously it's after uh, 72, but. Yeah, it was like 73. And so you're just out of high school. You're in college at that point. Um, I'm, no, I'm in in high school. In high school still. Wow. Yeah. Um, and after that, did you manage to get out and see some shows? Uh, yep, Baltimore Civic Center uh, was my first show. It was like a five hour show, and um, you know, that, that's seventy four. <laughs> is that right? Seventy three. Okay, so you're still in the one drummer era for sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, um, I saw that show, I saw RFK, um, and maybe one other show, one or two other shows in that era. Are there, are there particular, uh, songs or eras that you get off on more? 72 to 74 era for sure. You know yeah. I mean? Cause that's when I first started seeing them and that's when, everything crystallized for me and just the, you know, you could hear more of the separation of all of the, the instruments in that era, you know, um, you could just hear everything and you could really make out the conversation that was going on between everybody. And the band seemed pretty light on their feet. You know, I mean, I, not nothing against the, the, the other era, eras like when mickey came back it was it developed a power and a bigness right. that it, it it didn't have previously um but maybe the the jams didn't turn corners the way they used to and yeah it that's a common theme that comes in exactly the phrasing of it you can't turn corners as smoothly with the two drummers yeah i think things can move so much easier from one place to another place with the one drummer and that's been a pretty uh a pretty consistent observation amongst yeah, the and, but you can get too. big and powerful, you know, um, with the, with the two drummers. Oh, for sure, and you yeah. can change directions. You just yeah. can't maybe do it as quickly and as smoothly. It's it's a little harder to with uh, you know another engine. Yeah, with with having the other engine back there. Yeah. Um, so I want to back up again. Then, so you get into the 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 Western swing thing, and you go out with Cowboy Jazz. Is that your? And are you touring the country at that point? Yeah, we started off as just a regional band uh, in Maryland and then uh, started going out to Colorado and South Dakota because some of the band members had contacts out there and used to live in Colorado. And then uh, we got a record deal with Rounder Records. Uh, we put out two albums and they caught the attention of uh, some radio stations across the country, uh, a big one being a station called KFAT that was in like the Santa Cruz mountains. And so we started getting invited to do shows out in the Bay area. And so that was, you know, my first experience playing music in the, in the Bay area I was traveling with those guys. 
Right on. Now, were you playing guitar or pedal steel in that band? Uh, both, but mainly pedal steel. Like a, I well, I'd say like about eighty percent pedal steel. Right, and and you're self-taught on pedal steel as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, you mentioned that you know that the first time you heard of pedal steel was on Teacher Children, and and it was Garcia. But at that time, you still weren't into the Grateful Dead when you heard. No, nope, I had no idea. I'd heard the name Grateful Dead. I had no idea. You know so what? What's it like then when you know of Garcia as this amazing pedal steel thing that you've heard that has basically been the voice of God to you in an epiphany moment, and then you hear him as a guitar player? Well, it just uh, completely opened up, you know, my world to a different. A sound and a different style of playing. Like I said, it's a sound that always I was like searching for, but I didn't know how to relate it. Um, but, you know, like previously to that, the, you know, the guys, the guitar players that are listening to that were more the guitar slinger kind of guys playing hot licks and, and sort of showy and, um, well, just a different thing. Not there's not that there's anything wrong with that uh, at all. <laughs> right. right um, of course. <laughs> but then, um, you know, uh, hearing Jerry opened up, opened me up to hearing more melodically as a guitar player and, and making melodic statements instead of, you know, trying to play flashy, you know, and just opened me up to the world of, of melody and, and nuance and, right and, and space, space between the notes and, you know, listening to what everybody else is playing and, um, you know, having that kind of determine where you go musically. Right. That you're, you're answering my next question right now, which is so beautiful. Um, what about, you know, see, you've talked about it, you know, playing the influence he may have had on, on, a, on your hands and on your ears. What about on your mind? Um, you know, we talk about stylistically, but what about mentally or philosophically the influence of his playing? Um, it made me want to take psychedelics for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so that kind of had an influence on my mind. Um, I don't know. You know, I guess it opened it, me more up to the, uh, the community spirit in music. You know, and and just everybody working together to make this thing, and the you know, uh, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts kind of deal. Would you think he influenced you more in the guitar world or in the pedal steel world? Oh, well, guitar world. Yeah, I what you know, I mean, um, hearing teacher children that was that made me aware of the instrument. I don't know that I was uh, that I would say that I was influenced by his pedal steel playing um i would say that i was influenced by his musicality in general you know regardless of uh, of the instrument um i want to talk to you about constructing a solo from it and, and really, this really doesn't apply to one instrument over the other but uh I mean, you talked about garcia how would you consider i mean would melody be the way you consider he constructed his solos was over the melody i would say if i had to say you know, if I had to define it, I'd say that he would start, you know, with a melodic concept of, you know, playing around with the, um, you know, playing the melody, 
pretty much. And, uh, you know, and as the solo develops and maybe he takes it around a second and third time, starting to embellish the melody a little more and just going further and further out. And, but always with some sort of tie to the song and to the, you know, melodic statement of the song. It was never, it wasn't a chops fest. Right. It wasn't about look what I can do. Yeah. It was, you know, very considerate of um, the construction of the song and the melody of the song. And you follow that in in my mind, in my mind. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, I mean, um, whether or not I'm playing that style of music, I'd say I always start, you know, I always try to start from a, a, a melodic space of, you know, being cognizant of the melody of the song and the phrasing of the song, and then, you know, start to take it out and embellish it from there. Right. But let me ask when, when, as improvisers though, when, when, when we're, when we're in the moment and we're soloing, we're supposed to try not to think and just let it flow and let it come. Right. Which is easier said than done, to be honest, you know, when it's working right, it works that way. I guess what I'm getting at is when you're soloing, is there a balance between kind of uh, like how do I say like some of your the go-to licks that you possess, and then being purely inspired spur of the moment creativity. Do you have to find a balance in that, or do you just let it all go? I try to just let it all go. You know, I try not to have a preconceived notion of what I'm going to do or a melody I'm going to play, unless it's um, a certain thing that's specific to that song. Um, you know, and this depends whether I'm playing over chord changes like a solo over chord changes to a song or whether I'm just freeform jamming over one chord um, where the whole cosmos is available to you. Right. Um, But, you know, I mean, if I'm playing over changes, a successful solo for me would be starting with some sort of melodic statement that relates to the melody, maybe not the melody per se, but something that either has a melodic, or a, a rhythmic, you know, phrasing connection uh, to that, and then sort of making an opening statement that sets me off, and then getting to the juice of it in the middle of it, and then hopefully tying a bow on it at the end, and like finishing the story, telling the story, right? You know, but all, also at the same time, uh, keeping my ears open to what anybody else is playing around me. Um, you know, if I'm in the solo and I, and, and Pete Sears, my, you know, my brother and favorite bass player to play with, he might play a little melodic lick that might change the course of, of where I'm going and I'll engage with him a little bit and then sort of bring it back, you know, to wherever, wherever it winds up. (laughs) Right. That's awesome. Uh, you and Pete play together in a lot of different groups. So you guys have that, that symbiotic relationship. I mean, you can do all that with your eyes closed, can't you? Yeah. I mean, I just, for the first time Pete and I played together um, and Pete is a great uh, piano player as well. Right. Um, and I always connected with him that way. And then the very first time that we found ourselves playing guitar and bass together, I think we both instantly thought like, well, this, this has to happen. This is supposed to happen. Like we're supposed to be playing together. That's so awesome. 
Um, I want to ask you, we're still talking about soloing and just playing in general, I guess, you know, if you think about the Grateful Dead, they were masters at changing, or I don't want to necessarily use the word changing. They were masters at evolving a song through the years, you know, and eyes of the world from 72 sounds really different than an eyes of the world from 82 to 92. You know, it evolved after that, after playing so long, um, how do you keep it fresh and interesting when it's when you're jamming and not just doing the same things over again? You know, if you play songs for a long time, how do you keep that fresh? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, sometimes it's challenging, but I always try to listen to what's going on around me. And like, if I get to sort of a little creative lull where I'm, you know, maybe, not, okay, what do I do now? Uh, you know, being open to, to space for one thing and having that moment where you can sort of take a breath and hopefully let the muse come in. Um, rather than, I don't like to force it. You know, I think there's times where we all probably find ourselves like, uh, maybe I didn't want to play that. I was just, no, you know, like, so I try to, you know, be clear headed about it and have an open mind and, listen to any thing that's being played around me that can give me a little idea of something to jump on and grab on and, and take somewhere else. Right. I'd imagine one of the things that helps you keep it fresh in particular, you play with a ton of different groups oh, and, you know, over the years, especially. Um, and, and yeah, they're mostly improvisational groups from what I gather, but they cover a lot of different musical territory from straight ahead rock to psychedelia to country to Americana, all of that. And, and I'm sure that helps keep it fresh, but do you have to change or does it, it subconsciously even, does your mindset change going from one of those genres to another? Not really. You oh. know, I, I try to cons uh, remain consistent with um, the way that I approach music rather than put it in a specific category. Um, oh, influences. Mm -hmm. I got one. Bingo. I remember <laughs> one. Uh, James Burton, uh, country guitar player, played with, you know, played with Elvis. Right. Uh, but, you know, Merle Haggard, uh, just on a lot of, a lot of records. He was on uh, Emilio Harris's first album. Um, kind of wrote the book on chicken picking chicken and that and that style of playing and also very melodic like he can play very simply and very melodic and then turn around and just do some like mind bending chicken picking stuff that like whoa what's that for people who might not know what chicken picking is can you define that for them out there well uh, that might be a term only the musicians know okay sure. okay uh uh, done generally on a Telecaster guitar, which is sort of the, you know, as a friend of mine wrote in a song of his, it's the hammer of the honky tonk gods. I love the telly, man. It's the Bill, best. Bill Kirshen. Um, and it's a style playing where it's you, a lot of staccato notes and some of the notes are kind of muted and you kind of get a, you know, you know, like, like you're choking a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no no chickens were harmed in the making, in the making of, this of this podcast interview. <laughs> uh, but it's just a very staccato 
a way of playing with you know some muted notes and um you know it's a pretty classic sound to um honky tonk and, and country music um so many of the projects i mean again we've talked about all these different projects and the different styles you've played over the years but a lot of the projects you've been involved in have close ties to the dead whether it's something like kingfish in the 80s or the david nelson band or any number of the bands that you're in that have members that are associated with the grateful dead when you're playing with those groups and a lot of those groups do you feel the influence or the ethos of the dead any more in one of those groups than another did you really feel that coming through at all with any of the groups you're playing with um as far as the ethos of the dead yeah i mean my uh I like to be able to keep it open and free enough where anything could happen. And in, in some groups that's going to happen more than others. Some groups are going to be more open to it than, than others. But uh, you know, if I can be in a space where um, you know, at any moment it could go off into something else that's not scripted, I'm happy. Right on. <laughs> you spent, you spent a lot of time over the years playing with numerous members of the dead. Um, probably Phil more than anybody, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. um, how did all that come about? Uh, let me see. Um, okay, so the, so the first time I played with Phil was in 1999. And it was shortly after uh, David Nelson Band had released, uh, I forget, what, you know, one of our uh, releases or CD releases that we did. And somebody had gotten a copy of it to Phil. And um, it was at the time where he just started playing again uh, in 1999, you know, after a, a few years layoff. And um, I think he had his liver transplant right before then. And I believe the first shows that he did were with a couple of the guys from Fish. And then he did a show, I think, with Yorma and Pete was uh, Pete Sears was on keys and Prairie Prince on drums. And then uh, it might have been the third one. It was uh, July of 1999. Um, I got a call one day from Phil um, at my home in Baltimore. And, you know, he said, hey, I heard this um, this album that you play on with David Nelson band. And I was wondering if you would be uh into coming out to california and playing a couple shows with you know you and david nelson mookie siegel uh steve kimmock and bill kreutzman so so you know flew out to the bay area uh rehearsed for a couple days at the front street studio um played two shows at the warfield and so that was the first time and then uh, at some point the following year, uh, they brought uh, Mookie and I back out uh, to jam with another group of, of musicians with the, the possibility that we were going to go on tour. It was, uh, that was uh, me, Mookie, Phil, Molo, and Robin Ford. And... Um, so we rehearsed for a couple of days that went well. And we thought, I mean, after, after the rehearsals were over, Phil came in and said, gentlemen, this, this band is ready to hit the road. So we thought, all right, well, I guess we're going to, you know, go on the road, but wound up uh, becoming a different group. I think um, 
that wound up being Paul Barrer and um, and uh, uh, Bill Payne. Bill Payne. Thank you. God, how could I forget that? And so then I think the next uh, my next thing with Phil was um, I'd seen him around local gigs here and there. We might have been done a few sit-ins here and there, but then. Uh, he asked me to be part of this thing uh, in the end of 2004, which was uh, me, Phil, Jimmy Herring, Molo. I can't remember who was playing keyboards. I don't think it was Baracko uh, at that time. Uh, and uh, Tim Carbone from Railroad Earth, uh, Todd uh, from Railroad Earth, and... Um, couple of the other guys from railroad earth, I think we're in Big it also band. and Chris Robinson singing. So that's where, that's where I met Chris uh, for the first time. So uh, we did three gigs and then the next year uh, we went on tour. I can't, I don't think it was everybody from that band. I think the tour was uh, I know Chris was the singer and I think Larry Campbell may have, been, uh, may have been the other guitar player and it was me and Larry and Mookie and Chris uh and phil and molo and then you know that just continued throughout the years um on and off with me uh doing tours with him with various different groups of musicians got to to meet and play with some great people uh on some of those tours john schofield and right um that that, those were really fun gigs that we did with him when you go Uh, back to the beginning of that and in 99 excuse me and you've been a fan of that music for a long time. What's that like at the beginning? Now you get a call from one of them. Come play with me. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was exciting. You know, I mean, at first you wonder, this is a prank call. Well, I actually knew that he was going to be calling because, um, Nelson had told me, I guess he had talked to Nelson first and, um, he called Nelson and, uh, Phil said something like, Hey, I, you know, uh, really digging the playing on this record and everything and would love to have you, you know, you play with us. And he goes, well, you know, just to let you know, that's uh, most of the solos on that record are, are, are not me. That's, you know, this other guy in the band, Barry. And um, so I guess Phil got my number from David and David let me know that to expect a call. So I was sort of expecting it. Otherwise, I would have thought maybe I was getting pranked or something. <laughs> <laughs> and like you said, you met Chris there. and I mean, that just led to a whole bunch of other stuff and opened up a bunch of other avenues for you, didn't it? Right. Yeah. Great. So, and, and the other members of the dead, you spent some time with any of them as well? So, yeah. Um, uh, Kreutzmann, I met on that, you know, the, the dates in 1999. And then uh, Nelson Band... Uh, had a run of like 10 or 11 straight years where we would go to Hawaii every winter and, and play two weeks, like a week on big Island week on Maui. And um, Billy lived over there. Uh, Molo was our regular drummer, but he um, <clears throat> is not a big fan of Hawaii. He's got, uh, he's got very fair skinned and he can't really go out in the sun and, you know, and so uh, we started, you know, a couple, two or three times, uh, we use Kreutzmann uh, for the Hawaii dates. So, you know, I got to develop a, a closer thing with him from doing those. 
Um, still see them from time to time when I'm, you know, over there playing or vacationing and we'll, you know, we'll get together and jam. Nice. Um, Bobby, I think I first met through Matthew Kelly through uh, Kingfish and he came out and, and we did some event cause he was out of the band out of by the time, by the time I joined Kingfish. Right. Um, so I may have met him. I think I played with him before Phil. Gotcha. Um, to the Kingfish connection. Yeah. I, I met him before then. Uh, actually the very first time I met him was when I was playing in cowboy jazz. Uh, and we played at the old Sweetwater in 1986 and the dead was not touring because Jerry was in the hospital at the time. Right. Um, and somebody brought Bob down to a show and, you know, we hung out in the dressing room afterwards and he invited the whole band up to his house afterwards. And, um, that was my first experience meeting any of the guys from the dead. Uh, you know, we weren't playing or anything, but we just went up to his house and hung out and, you know, kind of partied. And, right on. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess that's yeah. it. I never, yeah. never, never met Jerry. No, me neither. I never met him, which you know, it's a shame. I also am almost ashamed to admit I never saw the Jerry band either. Just never got around to it, you know. Yeah, I thought there'd be time. So you got so many other gigs that you're involved with. We talked about the stuff with Chris Greenleaf Rustlers, Chris Robinson Brotherhood. You're a longtime member of Moon Alice. You got the new thing, relatively new, the California Kind thing with my bandmate Rob. Um, what's coming up in the immediate future for you? I'm going to see, I'm going to be playing on a festival with you this weekend. That's right. This will already be out by then folks, but Barry and I will are seeing each other. I think in two or three days, we're oh. going to be on a festival together in California. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've <laughs> uh, got some, um, some moon Alice stuff, which, and that's a, a, a new band from what it used to be. It's now called full moon Alice. And we're now a 10 piece band. We've added, the T sisters, uh, three, uh, three sisters, two of them twins from the East Bay, uh, beautiful singers. Uh, they, you know, they, they add a real sweetness and sassiness to the, uh, to the presentation and bring some great songs and, uh, Lester Chambers from the original Chambers brothers that had the big hit time has come today. So him and his son, Dylan, and so we've incorporated a lot of the old Chambers Brothers material uh, into the set and and the T-Sisters material and still doing our, our jam thing. So it's kind of, uh, it's almost become like a variety show and it's really it's cool. Like, I feel like it's uh, it has a little something to offer everybody. Um, we now have... Tons of vocals that we never had before. A lot more harmony going on now, for sure. A lot more harmony, uh, you know, strong lead vocals. Um, uh, probably a showmanship aspect that <laughs> that certainly I don't have, you know. <laughs> but I, I think for people that are like, you know, don't want to just look at a couple guys standing up there playing, they now have something to look at and, right. <laughs> and be entertained by <laughs> that's outside of the realm of music but the music is is very entertaining as well so i've been you know i've been excited with the, the changes there and Are the core players still the same is it still yeah. you and, and pete and, and molo and everybody me pete molo and roger and then uh jason crosby plays with us sometimes jason's out on the road with jackson brown right now so uh so mookie siegel is playing with us from david nelson band 
Right on. I didn't know Jason was out on the road with Jackson Brown right now. Yeah, it just started. I think they just did their first gig. Yeah, they're coming uh, here at some point on this tour. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, they're doing a big tour with uh, James Taylor. Right. Yeah. So you're going to be busy again coming up. That's good. So, man. well, um, let me see. Just a few of those Moon Alice things, a few uh, uh, David Nelson thing here and there. Um, Chris is now back on the road with. Um, black crows so there's not going to be anything there for a while um uh, may do some things coming up uh, with bob kind of soon um so um other than that you know that's that, that's that's pretty much it i'm not up to my previous pre-covid schedule where i'm as busy all the time but I'm okay with that, you know. I love I love where I live. I love having time here to spend with my cats. But it feels good to at least have some things uh, on the horizon out there and get my hands back into to playing music. Right. Um, you know, uh, now that I'm doing it a little more again, it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, I've missed this. And I just miss being out there and playing for people and seeing the people and just the, you know, the connection of the community. All right, before I thank you so much for doing this, but before I let you go, I do this with every one of my guests. A quick lightning round. Don't think, just answer. Uh, you already answered this one, though. First Grateful Dead show. Uh, yeah. Uh, Civic Center, Baltimore Civic Center in 1973. Favorite Grateful Dead show? Uh, Red Rocks, 1982. Uh, I think it was 727. 82. Okay. Studio recordings or live recordings? Grateful Dead. Um, <clears throat> live recordings, Europe 72. Um, just because that's the first one that I heard and it really stuck with me. There's so many to choose from there, but that's what came to mind. Uh, studio recordings, uh, maybe Mars Hotel. Okay. Favorite non-Grateful Dead album, that Desert Island album, man, the one album. Tough question, I know. Um, well, I always used to tell people that if it was going to be a, if the Grateful Day were included in that, Europe 72, because it's a triple album. Right, because you got more material. For the buck. <laughs> uh, that's a great answer. Maybe I'm going to say uh, Rock of Ages by the band, because that's a double album, and the band's one of my all-time favorite bands. Okay. First job. Uh telephone soliciting and then uh and then toys are us <laughs> favorite color it's a toss-up between purple and green favorite venue to play red rocks that's the standard answer yeah from every favorite day or no i'm sorry uh best city for a day off city Mm-hmm. Or place your favorite place for a day off. How's that? Uh I for me, favorite place for a day off would be somewhere where I can like uh some beautiful area where I can go for a hike. So um I would say uh home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that or 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 somewhere uh in the mountains of Colorado. Okay. <laughs> First car. Ford Pinto. <laughs> Current car. Um, Prius, uh, book you're reading. 
Uh, believe it or not, uh, I'm, um, where is it? Um, I, I, I can't believe I haven't read this yet, but Doors of Perception. Really? Yeah. Never read it. Well, I, I, I thought the same thing, and I thought, well, I, I think I need to read that. Oh, that's all right. You didn't start playing guitar till you were late in high school either. So, you know, you're just <laughs> behind the curve. That's all right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, any magazine subscriptions? Uh, Sierra Club. And besides playing music, what are you most excited that I might have to change this question again, but originally this question was, what are you most looking forward to when this madness is over? Now it turned into besides playing, what are you most excited to have back in your life as we come out of the pandemic? Oh, just social connection. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my favorite hobby is probably photography, if that's going to be one. <laughs> I you know, take a lot, of, a lot of nature pictures. Right on. So do you take yeah. your camera with you whenever you take your hikes? I take, uh, well, I've got an iPhone 11 Pro, so I always have something with me that has a decent camera. But uh, if I think I might be going somewhere where I'm going to see wildlife or want to zoom up close on something, I've got a, you know, more of a regular camera that I take. Very cool, man. Well, it sounds like you're doing well out there. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today and uh, share some of your insight into the Grateful Dead. My fans are going to dig this for sure. And uh, I will see you. Well, we will have already seen each other, but still, I will see you in a couple of days, man. So uh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Rob. I had a blast talking to you. And um, I look forward to... uh, to doing some more talking and uh and some playing right on man well safe travels and i will see you in california that is barry sless everybody thanks again my friend all right take care well that brings us to the end of yet another episode and i would like to thank barry sless michael wegner and one last time rick turner for being here i'd also like to thank my sponsors sarno music solutions and blue jade audio the clean store the authenticity academy and grateful sweats If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week, or you can show your love with a one-time contribution through PayPal. And please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love you can show is much appreciated as we try and keep this show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English, and he should have an album of that stuff coming out real soon, so I'll keep you posted on that. I will be back in two weeks with episode number 19, until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please, please, please stay vigilant. It's, it's not looking good out there right now, and we really got to get things heading back in the right direction. So please take care of yourselves and all of those around you. Thank you for being here.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. Fantasy Points.